Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Rob, put a little Thanksgiving sound effects in here. Some some clinking of silverware, people talking. You know what, Rob? Drop a turkey sound effect in here. Make it sound like a turkey just ran through the goddamn house. Yes. Yes, everyone. It's Thanksgiving. Now, now gather around. Thanksgiving is about food, gratitude, and the white man murdering Native Americans in droves, pushing their culture by force, erasing a genocidal history under the guise of a holiday that people are only really happy about because it gives them a brief rest from this awful system of capitalism. But listen, Thanksgiving is also about family, which is why today we're talking about the 2001 Pepsi 400 with a very special guest. Welcome to First Ballot, the podcast that celebrates the moments in sports that really matter and inducts them into the First Ballot Hall of Fame. I'm your host, Neil, the long-lost Gasol brother, the podcast Jordan Clarkson, the half-Filipino, half-Jewish Bernie Kozar, coming to you live from the Shaquille O'Neal Office Depot, big and tall executive suite desk chair in top grain black leather, very luxurious. Today's episode could be sponsored by Pillsbury Crescent Rolls. God damn. Damn, you know Pillsbury Crescent Rolls fucking slap. Holy shit. If you don't like Pillsbury Crescent Rolls, you are truly some kind of rich asshole, and I don't like you. The way they taste, the softness. I even like opening those tubes. You tear off the paper, you use the spoon to make that thing pop. Holy shit. Tearing the the, the dough, the perforations in the dough, you tear it off. They cook fast. They smell good. The way they taste, the softness, motherfucker. Pillsbury Crescent Rolls really hit the spot on Thanksgiving. Get some Pillsbury Crescent Rolls today. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, why the hell are you doing a podcast on a NASCAR race? The Pepsi 400? You're lucky I fucking clicked on this shit with a goddamn title like that. Listen, I get it. But the great moments transcend the sport, and it's the job of the First Ballot Hall of Fame podcast and organization to help all of us fully understand and appreciate the moments that matter. All that said, I cannot lie, I'm not some giant NASCAR fan, so here to help me tell the story of the 2001 Pepsi 400 on this Thanksgiving day is an award-winning history teacher. He's a program manager of a Department of Labor grant where he's working to educate and train convicted felons who are re-entering society. But most importantly for today, he's a NASCAR fan. And he's my big brother. It's my brother, Michael. Michael, welcome to the show. Are you ready? Thank you, Neil, for having me. Absolutely. You fucking better be. 
I don't want to say that I'm any sort of uh, expert or fan of NASCAR as much as you profess. I was a big fan for a very period of my time. So it's the only reason you're on the show, pal. Let me tell you, you are a <laughs> shit booking for this show. I just had Gerald Henderson Jr. on the show, NPR and podcast lesson, Jesse Thorne. And now it's just with right to you, right into the toilet. No, I'm I, I'm not going to uh, deny the fact that I was a big fan for a, a period of time. It's just I'm certain there's many other people there who might call out <laughs> my level of expertise. But I will say I know this moment. I feel like I know this period of, of, of NASCAR well, so I have no problem commenting on it. Before we tell the moment of this story, Mike, please set the table for us. And you know what's interesting here is I actually don't know the answers to the questions I'm about to ask you. Let's set the table. What's your favorite sport? your favorite team, and your favorite athlete of all time. I sincerely don't know what your answers to any of these three things will be, which is crazy because I am your blood brother. Oh, wow. Uh, favorite sport has to be un- unquestionably football. Um, do, do I need explanation or just answer? No, no, you can just answer. Uh, yeah, uh, just uh, football. By far, favorite team has to be, uh, I guess, the Cleveland Browns, uh, just regional to being from Ohio. Uh, and then... Favorite athlete of all time? Uh, I, I like uh, I, I like I like dirty players. I, uh, that might offend a lot of people, but the Ty Domes, the Vontes Burfecks, the Richie Incognitos of the world, the ones who have no problem violating the rules and offending most people, are the ones I find the most entertaining. Now hold on, why do you, why is that the case? Why do you like dirty players? I mean, and this is going to go along with Earnhardt. I think your topic of the day. I just like people who. I mean, because the bottom line, what is a sport? Except it's entertainment value, yeah. right? Yes. And and we have rules, and and it's great, and and this is all about teaching sportsmanship and <laughs> and whatnot. But I think there's something entertaining on a, an adult level of having somebody who's willing to violate the rules in front of uh you know masses of children and family members who are trying to push the a family component uh to a sport when they're willing to to, to break the rules so i don't know i've always found that amusing only because it's entertainment right i wouldn't if, be thrilled if my son was playing right. against somebody who was a cheater right. but uh if you had to pick just one of those people who are you picking are you picking ty domi yeah it's got to be okay. ty domi because he smiles about it i mean right. it's all he's part of the show he knew it now go ahead and explain to everyone listening to this who Ty Domi is. Oh, <laughs> it's been that long. Uh, well, actually, yeah, um, Ty Domi was a, a legendary wing for the Toronto Maple Leafs, for the New York Rangers, and for the Winnipeg Jets uh, back in the '80s and and '90s. His son now plays, um, so I think his son's much uh, more prolific of a player than he was. But he was a small guy uh, who believed he was bigger, at least in his head, and was known for, for uh, a number of fights against yes. legendary enforcers like Bob Probert and whatnot. Um, but it's it's just the fact that he smiled about it. He'd fought. He was It was like he was in his head. He was part of the you know WWE. And uh, it, he just kind of – he loved to start stuff you know with people. And I don't know. I always found that entertaining. How long have you been a Cleveland Browns fan? Oh, okay. So, because you weren't, you didn't grow up a Cleveland Browns fan. So, you're surrounded by Cleveland fans, and I'm sure you know my. You're, you're really that I'm jumping talking. on the Cleveland Brown bandwagon. Here. Yeah, yeah. You mean the the the, <laughs> the the game I just saw where they're blown out in Detroit? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it, it's one of those things that you're you're raised in an environment, and this is a whole other, you know, topic. I'm sure you you can have, but I, I just people who like teams from a from across the country is it's one thing. I mean, if you're gonna like sports, you know like the team that's regional it's like going to a high school and say i'm going to support a different high school across the town because i think that team wins more it's absurd you represent the team that 
is from the area you're growing up in. So, uh, you know, I grew up liking teams across the country, but everyone else I knew, all my friends are fans of the, the Browns. And of course, if you look at the Bernie Kosar era that you already made reference to in your intro of 87, 88, I mean, they were, they were one of the top dogs of, uh, of the NFL at the time, granted the fact that they never uh, won a Super Bowl at that time, but uh, still growing up around that and around that hoopla, it was a, uh, it was a impactful uh, influence, I should say, uh, growing up. And then years later, being in this area, and my friend uh, and I both had season tickets. And now we've had season tickets for gosh, 13, 14 years now. At some point, you just kind of gravitate toward the team that's uh, representing the people in your, your uh, part of town, part of uh, the world. What you all don't know listening to this is that this is an absolute attack. This is a direct affront on me liking Los Angeles <laughs> Lakers. That's what that was in a so not sly or hidden or secret way. This is him, my older brother, again, taking shots immediately at me, the talent, the, the progenitor, the, the, the owner, the creator of the Hall of Fame, uh, first ballot Hall of Fame. Uh, really a sad, hey, very sad that he's gone to these depths so soon. For a for for the record, I did start off saying I was a, my favorite athlete was Ty Domi, a guy who didn't even play for this country uh, in sports. So no, I get it, and especially when you're a kid, you like what you like, and it's. I mean, I was the same way. I was really no different. Uh, it wasn't until I was an adult that I say, if I'm going to watch a, a sport team, it would make sense for me to watch something regionally. But if you like something growing up as a kid, I'll I'll power to you. I did not grow up in Los Angeles. I've always been a Los Angeles Lakers fan. Is that true or false? Uh, true. Perfect. Here we go. Keep moving. Uh, we're going to get into the story <laughs> of this moment. I actually don't know everything about this. Of course, I researched it. I watched the race, et cetera. But I don't know everything. So I'm going to go through the, 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 the high water marks, the big points of this story. And Mike, I'm going to come to you when I need some, some background. And please, by all means, let me know if I've missed something to tell the story. Of the 2001 Pepsi 400, we have to talk about the Daytona 500. The Daytona 500 is the Super Bowl of NASCAR. It's the biggest race, the most prestigious race, and the race everybody wants to win. Dale Earnhardt Sr. is widely considered one of the best NASCAR drivers of all time. Top five, top three, if not the best, and Earnhardt is decidedly, without equivocation, the coolest NASCAR driver of all time. That's not up for debate. He's the intimidator, the man in black. Dale Earnhardt Sr., who won a record seven NASCAR Cup Series championships, actually failed to win the Daytona 500 19 years in a row. 19 years! What's crazy is despite this very public failing, Dale Earnhardt Sr. is actually the winningest driver at the Daytona International Speedway, the track where the Daytona 500 is held. Earnhardt won 34 career races at the Daytona Beach Landmark, but had never won the big one. But as the old saying go, the 20th time's the charm. Dale Sr. finally got his crown and won the Great American Race, the Daytona 500 in 1998. It was such a monumental moment for the sport that every member of every race car's pit crew lined up to high five and pay their respects to Dale Earnhardt Sr. Truly a day NASCAR fans will never forget. Michael, is everything I've said true? What have I missed? Care to add anything? Uh, no, absolutely. Everything's uh, spot on there. As much as he lost um, 
uh, those 19 races, it's almost the fashion that he lost them in. Um, because many times it was like last lap accidents. I mean, you really have to kind of see the history of all the times that he lost. It's, 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 it's uncanny how he lost. So I think everybody by the time 1998 rolled around, um, it was like every team was rooting for him. So uh, that, that, that 20th race, that, that first Daytona 500 was all the more sweet that uh, you really have to see everything that went, that led up in the 20 years prior to understand how special that was. A huge day. Let's get back to our story. Changing legendary racing families. We started with the Earnhardts. We're switching to the Waltrips. Michael Waltrip was a stock car racer for 33 years. Again, sticking with the family theme, Michael Waltrip is the younger brother of NASCAR legend Daryl Waltrip. Daryl Waltrip won 84 career races over his storied career, whereas younger brother Michael lost his first 84 races. I'm kidding. Michael Waltrip actually lost his first 100 races. No, I'm joking. Michael Waltrip actually lost his first 200 races. Can you believe that? 200 straight losses. Well, I'm lying again because Michael Waltrip lost his first 300 races. It's 400. Michael Waltrip lost his first 400 races. And you're thinking he started exactly 400 races without ever winning exactly 400. No, he actually lost his first 462 races and never won not a single one the guy was a legendary loser (laughs) known worldwide as a tremendous loser of nascar races well in 2001 after enduring another tough season michael waltrip got a new nascar life after he was signed by dale earnhardt senior earnhardt's nascar team had two drivers Michael Waltrip, one of the unluckiest drivers in NASCAR history up to that point, and Dale Earnhardt's son, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Michael, anything to add here? Yeah, no, uh, he actually had three drivers. Steve oh, Park. How dare you? You made me look so stupid. <laughs> Steve Park was his first driver, who uh, I think Dale Earnhardt thought was like the next big thing. So there was a lot of pressure on Steve Park as the first driver to belong to the official Dale Earnhardt team. And then, of course, talk about pressure. Dale Jr. coming on board uh, and assuming all the... the, the uh, power or i'm sorry all the weight uh, and worry that his father's name put on him but michael i think was the most special uh simply because dale took a dale senior took a took a chance on a guy not only because it's ironic that he had 462 races that he never won um but if you think about being a guy who's i mean michael waltrip was basically only in this motorsport because of his older brother's name uh, because the name Waltrip brought attention and dollars uh, uh, and marketing to him. I mean, he had to feel ah. this level of denigration after hundreds of races, knowing that he was only there because of his brother. So why did Dale sign him? Was it because signing a Waltrip is good news and probably does good business for them? I, I, okay, and this is me. I mean, I, I once again don't want to profess that I'm an expert because I can't speak with authority, but I'll tell you that Michael Waltrip had no... Um, he didn't have the brand marketing in 2000, 2001 that uh, Steve Parker or Dale uh, Jr. had. They were young and having youthful. This was the era that it was just past the Jeff Gordon phase when everyone real or market NASCAR realized that um, 
younger people were starting to watch uh, racing. It was younger people all over the country. It wasn't just people in the South. So when they started to say, let's change the the appeal and not just have this as the good old boys from down South and Dale Jr. represented a kind of a an alternative rock type feel to it. Um, Steve Park uh, was young as well. I don't think Dale Sr. had any motivation to bring on Michael Waltrip because he thought he was hip or young. Right. I mean, he was funny, uh, but I think he did it maybe as a, a, a connection and family or the, the fact that Dale Sr. probably just believed that he was a good driver. And in a sport where it really, I mean, when you say 462 races, uh, it's one thing to sit back and say, oh, well, this guy's just a loser. But the reality is he had an incredible skill. If you don't have a good team that supports you, I mean, Barry Sanders is a great running back, but he can only do so much with a with a the Detroit Lions of the '80s and '90s that aren't going to win a Super Bowl, you know. Right. And and Michael Waltrip could only do so much with what his team offered um, him. So I think Dale Senior saw something in him and said, "This guy has the ability. He has it just like the rest of us." But maybe a chance on my on Dale Senior's team would be the difference. I, at least I would think that that's what he believed. Back to our story again. Michael Waltrip signs with Dale Earnhardt in 2001. And the first race of the NASCAR season is the Daytona 500 at the Daytona International Speedway. Dale Earnhardt's racing, and so is his team with Michael Waltrip and Dale Earnhardt Sr. and maybe Steve Park. I don't know. I just learned about the guy. With 10 laps to go in the 2001 Daytona 500, the third place car is Dale Earnhardt. The second place car is Dale Earnhardt Jr. and running in first place. With 462 career losses to his name, Michael Waltrip. <laughs> Dale Earnhardt and the two Dale Earnhardt cars are one to three leading the race. Michael Waltrip leads the Daytona 500. Sterling Marlin in the fastest Dodge. And those two Earnhardts are right behind him. Michael, you're in the best place you've ever been in, bud. Hold her there. That's a good place when you got two teammates right behind you. I can tell you that. And they want to, they want one of those cars to win, and he's in the front. The man you just heard calling the race, that's Michael Waltrip's brother, the legendary Daryl Waltrip. Now here's where the story gets even crazier. Sterling Marlin is in a red hot race car, the 40 car, the Coors Light Dodge. It's fast as hell, and it's hunting down the leaders. But Dale Earnhardt running third, the Intimidator, the man who's never been afraid to bump a race car, is running interference. Sterling's all over Dale Sr. Dale Sr.'s trying to keep him back so they can't get to the two team cars in the front. This is a chess match at high speed. Four laps to go. Sterling Marlin is trying his damnedest to win this race, and Dale Earnhardt Sr. is doing his damnedest to keep Marlin from passing. Dale Sr.'s all over the track, swerving to keep Martin behind him. He thought he was going to win that one, and he just got shuffled out right at the end. Whoa! Look at Earnhardt. Sterling got into Earnhardt. He's get, Dale is doing everything he can to keep, keep Sterling behind him because Dale knows that Sterling's got a fast car. Michael, it's to you. Anything to add here? So some people debate whether or not Dale was intentionally blocking um, because he wanted Michael or Dale Jr., his son, to be able to win. Uh, and he was just blocking for the best of him. And, and a, a lot of fans who knew Earnhardt said no, or not fans, but uh, drivers who knew Earnhardt said no, this 
this Dale Senior was pretty cutthroat, and he would have uh, he would have done anything to win, even beating his son and Michael Waltrip. Um, but knowing the situation that he was in, I mean, he was fighting for his team. He was fighting for his own. He was a business owner, right? I mean, here is a guy who who could have had a, a conflict of interest being a driver and owning two, uh, three teams on the same track that he was sharing. Um, so no, absolutely. Every bit of that was, was him realizing, oh, wow, he could have some major influence, uh, on, on, uh, allowing Michael or his son to be able to win. So this is a father protecting his son. This was a business owner protecting his business interests and, uh, you know, a family friend, uh, defending his friend with Michael being in the lead. Perfect. Back to the story. We're now on the last lap of the 2001 Daytona 500. Michael Waltrips still leads. Dale Jr. is in second and Dale Sr. is in third. But Sterling Marlin has one more run left in him. Marlin dies below Dale Sr., who's still fighting to block any car from catching his son or his new teammate, the man who's never won a cup race, Michael Waltrip. Here's Michael's brother, Daryl, on the call. Come on, man. Come on now. Watch it, mirror. Watch it. He's going to make a run inside. Block him. Block him. That a boy. Three wide behind them. You got him, Mikey. You got him, man. You got him. Come on, man. Come on, baby. Come on. Get him in the fold. Get him in the fold. The three cars out. Oh! Big trouble. Oh. Big wreck behind them. Beat him back. Come on. To the flag. Come on, Mikey. You got it, man. You got it. You got it. You got it. You got it. Mikey! Michael Waltrip breaks his losing streak of 462 races and does so by winning the Daytona 500. A, a, a truly special call from his brother, Daryl Waltrip there. And who finishes in second place? Dale Earnhardt Jr. But did you hear the announcer shout big trouble just as the race was finishing? That's because Sterling Marlin ever so slightly got into the back quarter panel of Dale Sr.'s black number three Chevy at 150 miles per hour, causing Dale Earnhardt Sr. to lose control, careen into the wall on the final turn, and die instantly. Michael, tell us how the racing community reacted to this entire turn of events. Well, I mean, there were two, two, two parts of the racing community. There was the part that sat back and said, oh, my God, Sterling Marlin was evil. And a lot of people, I mean, there were death threats on his life. Um, I mean, there was a, he, yeah, I mean, he just endured, especially to people who don't know racing when they heard the headlines that Sterling Marlin caused the wreck that ca- killed Dale Earnhardt. He was, he was vilified. Um, but the large part of the racing community, including the fans, sat back and said, that's, that's part of racing. Uh, Dale, Dale Earnhardt himself had wrecked quite a few people in the same way. It's just what happens in the race, and no one, no one, you know, no one expected that to, to, to happen. Sterling Marlin, especially, so that yeah, was very uh, controversial at the time, as there were two different sides to it. But uh, the majority understood. In fact, I think uh, the Earnhardt family felt bad for Sterling Marlin because he he took the brunt of it. Tell us about the tributes that NASCAR paid and the drivers paid to Dale. As that season continued, this is sort of when I started watching NASCAR with you. Um, I had never watched it before. I think, you know, that tragedy and your sort of fandom of of Dale sort of brought me in at that point. Tell us about the tributes that the the rest of the drivers and and NASCAR as an organization paid to Dale for that season. 
Uh, I mean, if, if nothing else, I mean, the most notable is the third lap um, in reference to his, his obviously car number. Every lap that season, it was complete radio or uh, TV silence and no broadcast silence, I should say. Only the sound of the cars, of course, uh, raced around the track and every person in the in the stands uh, putting up number three on their hands. That's right. The third lap. I remember that there was something in the race. That third lap was uh, special to watch. Um, Dale Earnhardt dead at the age of 49 after that 2001 Daytona 500. It's just, uh, just an amazing moment, a sad moment, but an amazing story to remember. Um, Michael Waltrip winning his first race, the Daytona 500 Dale jr. Coming in second, his best finish up until that point at the Daytona International Speedway. It's finally time to discuss the actual Pepsi 400. It's July 7th, 2001, five months after Dale Sr. passes away. Michael, am I correct to say this is the first race back at the Daytona International Speedway? Uh, yes, for NASCAR, for Winston Cup, it is. First time that NASCAR drivers are back at the track where Dale Sr. lost his life. What's the energy like? What's the press like? What's what's the chatter going on before this race? Well, you know, I think a lot of people, I'm not a lot of people, I think everyone was was hoping for the best for, for Junior as far back um, as the broadcast, you know, the day of Dale Sr.'s death. Um, I, I just remember a lot of people were wondering how was Junior doing. I mean, obviously there's the, his wife, Teresa, and a whole bunch of other family members, but of course Junior being the most uh, uh, known in the media, everyone wanted to know how he was doing. And the first race after after Daytona, after the Daytona 500, uh, was at, uh, I believe, at Rockingham. Um, and on the first lap, the first lap of that Rockingham race, Dale Jr. went right into the wall. I mean, they didn't even make a full lap around. I think it was turn, turn two, if I remember correctly. And there was a collective gasp because they were like this. Even myself watching, I remember thinking, oh, my God, he turned into the wall the exact same way that his father did. And for a split second, you sit back and say, is he okay? Um, and the commentators are like, oh, that poor kid, you know. And you had to no he didn't really want to be there and and uh, the, i remember i think i actually i think i even read dale's junior's uh, autobiography and after his father's death i think he said i quit i don't want to do this anymore but you've got family you've got you know <laughs> billions of dollars on the line where i'm sure yeah. he feels compelled to go back in the car and within a quarter mile of starting that race he goes right into the wall I mean, everyone knew that he was kind of fighting his own demons and his own issues with his father and the, the loss and everything else. And you kind of had to question um, whether he should have been driving at all. So that second race, the, I'm sorry, the first race after um, Dale Sr. dies and Junior crashes in the first uh, lap, the winner of that race ended up being Steve Park, which had not won a race in. in I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, it's Neil, you'd love it because it's if you see the footage uh, Steve Park, as soon as he wins, you can see in the the in car camera footage he's sobbing, like oh. he's it's he's like yeah. And the cameraman said that you could see him wiping the tears away. And if you see this the the way he, I, it's just it was a phenomenal. I mean, just because Steve Park was very much, um, if I can say this, Steve Park didn't amount to end up having a huge career racing career like I think Earnhardt had for you know had foreseen. So all of a sudden, you know, when Junior got brought on board and all of a sudden Dale Sr. is opening up the team to Michael Waltrip and making it big, there had to be extra pressure on Steve Park's shoulders. So, man, I never, I never delivered yet. And for him to win the first race, 
it was like, yeah, I mean, it was really emotional. And then the third race overall, I think it was maybe two races later. So maybe it was the fourth race um, when they finally put Earnhardt's car and his team back on the track because it's money to be made. Right. Right. And, and Richard Childress said, we have to put a, a new driver to this. So they went from the opposite of a black car to a white car. They reduced the number from number three to number 29, almost like they're taking one notch away. And they put in this young kid, uh, Kevin Harvick, and it was his uh, third race, third race maybe overall uh, that he ends up winning in Atlanta. The exact same track that uh, by literally a fraction of a hundredth of a second, the exact same patterned away that senior had done one year earlier and chocolate Myers, the, the gas man um, for Dale seniors team, who also is a, an emotional guy. They show him just like uh, unbelievably sobbing inside. So like, there's all these different people between Waltrip winning and then all of a sudden Steve Park winning. And now Kevin Harvick, the new guy winning. Everyone was like, this is all happening. Like, majestically like not majestically right. mystically mystically and everyone was sitting back saying when is it going to happen for junior so in the you know the eve of the race everyone you know had their fingers crossed but no one wanted to say anything it's like not uh talking uh, about a no hitter in the middle of a no hitter right uh no one wanted to say it, but everyone of course was hoping everyone was hoping i had no that, that's a that's an amazing ad i had no idea about the about um park or kevin harvick again i'm just not a nascar guy and i researched this story that's amazing backstory um i also did read in my research that uh, dale jr said he went to his father's grave before this pepsi 400 which the weight of that i mean i just can't as I'm listening to you talk, I'm realizing there aren't many moments in sports where you're having to deal with death. There's just not a lot of athletes passing away as they're playing. So right out of the gate, it just sort of makes this anything that happens after this race fascinating and interesting and heartfelt and emotional, let alone the fact that Steve Park won and Kevin Harvick won. And 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 now here comes the Pepsi 400. A great race with 22 laps to go. Mike Skinner and Kurt Busch get into each other and cause a 12-car wreck that puts the race under caution. At that moment, Dale Earnhardt Jr. is in 7th place. Michael Waltrip is in 14th. The Pepsi 400 restarts with 7 laps to go. Junior has a perfect restart and is climbing fast. Look at Junior go, up to fourth. Here comes Bobby Labonte pushing through. Junior to the outside of Mayfield for third. Five laps to go now. Dale Junior makes his move for the lead on the track where his father passed. Here's Dale Junior to the outside of Dave Blaney for second spot. Mayfield pushes him along in the draft. To the outside for the lead in turn four. Dale Earnhardt Jr. rockets to the front of Daytona. Listen to the crowd. And look at this crowd behind him. Look at this race behind him. And what happened behind Jr.? Among other things, teammate Michael Waltrip climbs from 14th all the way to third place. Just two laps to go now, but Waltrip's not done. Michael Waltrip dives underneath Bobby Labonte. They bump on the backstretch. Waltrip to second. Elliott Sadler and Rusty Wallace with him. 
Joe Michael Waltrip blocked for Dale Jr. Will he try to win the race himself? White flag is out. Final lap in Daytona. 180,000 on their feet, screaming wildly. Two and a half miles to go. In the Daytona 500, Dale Jr. was second. Dale Sr. was third. And both were driving to protect their teammate, Michael Waltrip. Now it's Waltrip's chance to return the favor. Elliot Sadler and Bobby Labonte are running third and fourth, both desperate to make one last run at the win, but both are blocked by Michael Waltrip. Here they come, turn four, final lap of the Pepsi 400. Michael Waltrip in second, but it's going to be Dale Earnhardt Jr. using lessons learned from his father to go from sixth to first and score the victory of the Pepsi 400. That's, uh, that's unbelievable. Yes! A man behind you did it for yes. you. You guys celebrate. You love you, man. You did it. That was beautiful. Very, was very nice. Junior, you're happy. In the first race back of the Daytona International Speedway since his father died, Dale Earnhardt Jr. wins the Pepsi 400. Michael, tell us what happened on the infield after the race. Yeah, I mean, D Dale Jr., of course, spun out. Uh, with. I mean, instead of going directly to... Uh, the winner's circle, he did what I guess a lot of people do, um, did at the time in terms of spinning out, but in front of the grandstand, uh, <laughs> he, he, he got out of his car and as soon as he was exiting the car, Michael pulled right up next to him, which was the awesome part. Uh, I, I mean, it, Michael Waltrip, who wins that Daytona 500, never got to celebrate it. I mean, there's video footage right. of him trying to celebrate and Johnny Benson going up to him to whisper, and it's a harrowing footage. Uh, of him whispering, which you know is him telling him, hey, Dale died. So Michael never got to celebrate. So for him to roll up right next to Junior and get out of his car, and I mean, it's he stood on top of his own car before he even went to Junior. And I think Benny Parsons, who was the uh, commentator, said that's something like, that's okay, Michael, you deserve to get up there too. You never had your moment. And it was it was like, it was a two for one, right. um, you know, his teammates. So it, it, every bit, uh, mystical as it was compared to what happened in the, the Daytona 500 and just kind of roll reversing. It was, it was just a thing of beauty. The parallel of senior blocking the competition from getting to his son and Michael Waltrip and, and dying and then being back at that track and Michael Waltrip, the, the beneficiary of Earnhardt blocking in the Daytona 500 is now blocking for Dale Earnhardt senior's son so he can win the first race back, the Pepsi 400. That's just an amazing, amazing story. I just, I think that a lot of people, um, if they're not familiar with racing, Neil, and I, I know that you had made the, the comment about um, some of your uh, people who listen to the podcast being surprised that they're clicking on a, a Pepsi 400 uh, title. Um, people who don't understand racing or who are not familiar with it really don't get the speed <laughs> at what these cars are going uh, what they're what they're running at, um, because you have cameras that are you know panning and sweeping at the speed that really marginalizes the right. the speed of the cars and uh, the cars and cameras are so like homogenized together that uh, I think racing on TV almost kind of seems uh, boring to those who are un, you know not indoctrinated to to uh, how these you know how fast these cars are going. I having stood in the pits at like Indianapolis Motor Speedway, I remember it was the first time I ever saw a car fly by. Um, it's a blur. It's a flash of color. Your eyes cannot focus on how fast the cars are going. Only because of how the cameras work uh, do people on TV have the ability to watch it, but you don't realize the, the speed. And 
what was notable in the year 2000, and somebody has to can correct me here if I'm wrong, but I think it was 2000 and 2001, I'm almost certain, was the only time that NASCAR had done something to, uh, uh, to on top of the original restrictor plates that they put on the cars to restrict the amount of air that goes into the cars to slow them down. Because uh, back in the, the early 90s uh, and late 80s, there were uh, NASCAR drivers who were going 212 miles an hour at Talladega Speedway, Motor Speedway. Um, and they wanted to to make it a little safer by slowing it down. And I think um, the typical speeds are somewhere between 180 and 200 miles an hour at Daytona. Uh, and on top of that, um, because they realized that NASCAR realized from a marketing perspective, or from a television perspective, that no one found racing entertaining if the cars had been stretched out over miles of, of um, track uh, and never being able to go head to head. So they in 2000, they put a thing that was called a roof strip across the top of the car that was basically just like this uh, little tiny wall, a strip, if you will, of metal that stands on top of their roof that also slows them down. And more importantly, it keeps all the drivers together. And NASCAR realized, wow, this would be so much more fascinating at super speedways, which is the only place they did it, because it would force all 30, 43 cars, whatever, uh, whoever's on the lead lap to bunch together. Right. And all of a sudden, they know that there was a chance of a big wreck. So whether it was disastrous from the perspective that somebody could potentially die, um, but it was thrilling from a television perspective, uh, they put these things on. And, you know, not only was this roof strip on for Earnhardt Sr.'s last win, it was on for Earnhardt Sr.'s last race, his death. And it was on during Dale Jr.'s race uh, at the Pepsi 400. And it was eliminated soon after because the drivers had a concern with it. I mean, if you're looking at, just the speeds these cars are going at 200 miles an hour. I mean, just the straight math of it. That's like, uh, I think I did the math once. It was like 300 feet per second. And if you blink a blink, it takes like a third of a second. You're traveling approximately a hundred feet while blinking. And the car in front of you is only six inches away. So when you've got 43 cars or 30 odd cars, whatever packed together, six inches from each other, and they're all going at that speed, knowing that if they blink, if they sneeze, if anything happens where they're distracted, you know, distracted, um, they're going to be, you know, they could they could be dead. So the drivers became ter- terrified to sneeze, to blink, to everything else. And it was it was the small window of time that all of these, you know, uh, Earnhardt feats had happened um, between his last win, his death and Dale Jr.'s. So it's a very narrow window that that, that kind of makes this I don't want to say special, but it's different than how they race now and how they'd raced prior to that, um, that really showed um, uh, uh, NASCAR really wanted to making things entertaining by bunching a whole bunch of people's cars together to make things more entertaining. And, well, I mean, entertaining it was, but uh, uh, terrifying to, to watch at the same time. You t- you once told me when I – and by the by, I don't think it's cool to not know NASCAR. I just don't know it. I just don't know the sport. I don't know the history of it. But when I did watch it, I I enjoyed it, and it was never like cool to not know NASCAR. I just don't simply don't know it. So I, I want to be cl- clear about that. And for anyone listening, the, the sport is amazing to think about. And the thing that you sort of sold me on, when again when I knew nothing about NASCAR or racing in general, you sort of made the comparison to imagine when you're parking in a parking lot 
and it's a tight space and you're pulling in and you're a little nervous about your rearview mirror and, and you don't want to pull too far forward and you don't want to leave your tail hanging out of the back of the spot in case somebody drives through and is sloppy and might ding the back of your bumper how nervous and how cautious you drive when you're parking your car in a tight spot imagine that same space but you're going 180 200 miles an hour that's what you told me when i was younger I that is fascinating to think about uh, and i really feel like has for anyone that doesn't watch nascar has never been a, a, a race car fan to think about it that way is world changing to me yeah, and, and it was to me as well. Mind you, uh, for your listeners, we grew up in the same house. We didn't watch NASCAR. I didn't right. watch NASCAR. It wasn't until I lived in the South that I had a friend who introduced it to me. And I was realizing, wow, this is a science. This is so every little detail of physics that plays into this. And much like I was saying about people not recognizing the speed, it, it made me think of that. Um, I don't know if you remember that clip, Neil, where for the NFL Combine one year that uh, Rich Eisen decided yes. to do yep. the forty-yard dash, and they laid over top footage of John Jonathan Ross and yes. and uh, other people doing it. And you realize how fast these uh, uh, football players are. It's the same thing with with these race cars. Most people in this world, I'm assuming, have never driven over 100 miles an hour. Yes, you know. But when you approach 100, not saying I ever did that, Neil. But if when you approach 100 miles an hour, your car starts to shimmy and shake. Yes. I mean, it yes. doesn't take much. To lose control, and now imagine going double that in these cars that are inches away from each other. It's just, it's mind, it's baffling. It's it's a great point, and and you bring up. It's like when you watch basketball on television, you see it from a certain angle, you know it from a certain angle, and so you watch the guys play, and you're like, this is great. But it's only when you're there live, and the closer you get to the court, the crazier it is. But then you see their size and the power and the speed, and you go, oh, my God, these people are barely human. There right. is something about the how desensitized you get to watching the sport on television and not really realizing how amazing it is, let alone we're not even talking about the, the, the size of the full team and what they have to do in the pits, how much time matters there, et cetera. It, it really is a fascinating sport that everybody should give a chance to. And, and by God, start with rewatching the full Pepsi 400. It's on YouTube. Let's get into our Hall of Fame credentials to decide whether this moment makes the first ballot Hall of Fame. We have to go through those credentials. The first credential, as always, analytics. 160 laps, 400 miles in this race. That makes sense, Pepsi 400. I guess I didn't think about it that way. I didn't know that those numbers like meant something. <laughs> <laughs> but 400 miles, that's essentially Los Angeles to San Francisco. That's New York City to North Carolina. South Dakota, I looked on a map. South Dakota is about 400 miles across, passing right through Sturgis. Think about driving as fast as you can from Los Angeles all the way to San Francisco. As fast as you like 180 miles an hour. That was Dale Jr.'s qualifying lap. He was sixth best, 182.726 miles per hour. That's a long way to drive 180 miles per hour. Let Again, my brother mentioned it. You, you, you get up into the 80s, 90s on a highway, you're freaking out. You're worried about the cops. You worry there's a drone over your head. The car starts shaking. The wheel's getting loose. You, it's nuts. Imagine doing that for 400 miles. Just wild to think about. Any thoughts on those analytics? Any numbers there that add to this moment's greatness? Oh, no, I I just go right along with what you said. I would say to my students in class when we were talking about 
um, the tension of, of flying uh, a, a, as a combat pilot. And it goes the same with uh, driving a race car. I would always ask people, um, you know, who here as a teenager would uh, has driven a far distance? And I'd inevitably get to a handful of students whose parents allowed them to drive, you know, four or five hours as part of a family vacation. And I say, how do you feel at the end of those five hours? And they're like exhausted. And I'm like, wait a minute, how are you exhausted? You're just sitting. You might push your foot a little. You might, you know, you have to have your hands up, but you're not doing anything right. physically. And they're like, well, geez, it's the, te- it's the, it's the mental capacity. Right. I'm like, right. Now imagine <laughs> going 200 miles an hour uh, and having to keep that mental, uh, uh, you know, focus uh, and attention. It's, it would be absolutely draining. And of course I'm saying this as a person who never actually drove a, ra- right. a, a, a race car. So no, I, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's. It's beyond my comprehension. I mean, what racing does and the science of it, I, I've always thought it was comical that people uh, would mock racing or like NASCAR racing to say they're just going really fast in circles. Oh, there's so much science to it. There's so <laughs> much science to get people to the front and to keep that focus and do it. Uh, it's it was it was it was just shocking when I learned how how um, academic it really is. I wonder what's more of an emotional weight. The fear of dying or the fear of killing someone. I mean, it's both of those things on your mind as you're doing that, as you're driving literally as fast as you can for 400 miles and thinking, I don't want to die and I don't want to kill this guy. I like that guy. I mean, it's just amazing to think about. Uh, The next credential is the eye test. Michael, what did you see in this moment as you rewatched this race? You told me you rewatched it. That's nuts. What did you see in this race <laughs> that may add to the moment's greatness? Oh, so many things. I mean, a lot of the stuff you've obviously already uh, commented on, but uh, um, in terms of the 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 last uh, one of the wrecks that kind of bunched everybody up with the caution, um, hearing Tony Yuri, who is Dale's crew chief, um, <laughs> have to comment. And when they're interviewing him live in the middle of this, you know, caution as they know that they're going to go back live with about five laps to go. He said, best man ain't going to win this race. He said it to everybody. He's like, I've lost. He knew Dale Jr. had lost because he had dropped so far back. The reason why, to those who don't know racing, is that the five people in front of him had only taken, uh, I believe they only took two tires. I think somebody might not have actually taken any tires, Um, but Dale took four. And it, it, the, just the physics of taking four tires and having more grip on the, the, the track, or at least in the ability to go faster, I should say, um, is going to make the difference. But the five people in front of them is, is a, it's a world of difference when you're restart and you only have five laps to go. And I think Johnny Benson and Dave Blaney in front of them had never won a race. So much like Michael Waltrip, they're fighting for their namesake, their life, their families. Uh, Ken Schrader, who was ahead of him, hadn't won a race in, since like in like 10 years. Tony Stewart, who was running ahead of him, was a million dollar bonus driver. So he would have earned an additional million dollars for winning. And some random dude attached to him by a sweepstakes won a million dollars. <laughs> so like all these different things are going on in front of Junior. And and Tony Uri's like, yeah, best man ain't going to win this race. I mean, he was if you rewatch the interview, he was just he was like he was already exclaiming why he knew that they were going to lose. And when they went green, uh, I mean, it's just, it was, it was just, it's, I'm even talking about it. I remember standing in a bar watching that with friends. And I was like, I can't believe he's not going to win because the entire race he had been doing so well. Everyone's thinking that he could do this. And with that last wreck, him putting on four tires and dropping back five, six spots, you're like, I see it's it's not going to happen. So wait, what? So, so why did he take four new tires? 
Well, I mean, it's the science. Everyone knows if you take four tires, you're going to be faster. Um, but you don't know who's going to do that. And there's kind of this unwritten rule that you kind of, like other teams will talk to each other, kind of like, hey, are you taking four? I'm right. going to take four. Because you don't want to be caught hung out right. to dry. Right. So some of these people who stayed out, uh, you know, or just thinking, you know, maybe the caution will go long enough that there'll only be two laps left or three laps, and maybe I can block enough that I'll keep ah. everyone else behind me. So it's a lot of everyone's teaming up. Because if you go, you know, nose to tail, you can draft with the air and go faster as two cars compared to one on their own. And the old story goes that Dale senior, if you believe this, Dale senior could see the air. And I remember when my friend Roger told me about that down in uh, in Georgia, in Alabama, back in the late nineties, I remember thinking that's so freaking cool. (laughs) Like they've, that they've attributed one thing to this guy as being able to see air, something else that we couldn't see. Uh, and that that's what gave Dale's Earnhardt's family and Dale Earnhardt the ability to tr- uh, race at restrictor plate races at big super speedways um, uh, and with so much uh, more of um, uh, of an advantage. And that somehow this was either passed on to Junior or he taught Junior how to do this. Um, so when these other drivers in front of him took less tires, um, I think we all sat back and said, hopefully that this will work out. Um, but then he... <laughs> when he rocketed the lead, I remember I had tears in my eyes in this bar. I remember thinking, oh, he's going to be able to pull this off. And then uh, the best part is when Alan Beswick and Pe- Benny Parsons screamed, and you played the clip, Michael Waltrip in unison. Like they, like they tapped each other's on the shoulders to say it at the exact same time. They were shocked to see Waltrip put himself in that position, and every person said, oh, he's going to do it. He's going to, there's no way Waltrip's going to pass Junior. He's going to block for him like Junior did for him back in the 500. So Earnhardt takes four tires. It drops him back a few spots because he takes four. So he spends more time in the pit. He comes out. He drops back in the race. And his pit crew guy, what, what do you call the guy that runs crew your pit? Chief. The crew, crew chief, chief says on television, I remember, I mean, I saw that interview, but again, I wasn't thinking much of it. But in the interview, he says the best guy is not going to win. So he thinks we took four, so we're screwed. We're not going to win this race. Right. Amazing. And that folds in perfectly with the next credential. That's the ear test. What did you hear in this moment? Let's listen to this call again at the finish. Here they come. Turn four. Final lap of the Pepsi 400. Michael Waltrip in second, but it's going to be Dale Earnhardt Jr. Using lessons learned from his father to go from sixth to first and score the victory in the Pepsi 400. That's unbelievable. Yes! That man behind you did it for yes. you. You guys celebrate. You love you, man. You did it. That was beautiful. Very, was. very nice. Junior, you're happy. Is that Alan Bestwick, Benny Parsons, and Wally Dallenbach Dallin on the call? That sounds right. That sounds right, if I remember correctly. Obviously, the lessons learned from his father is a perfect line there. I also like hearing Benny Parsons scream yes. Like I like hearing oh, yeah. everyone clearly love what's happening in this moment. And I don't think I, I, I don't think I mean just like anything else. I think the NASCAR commentator world wants to be as professional as the next right. group, not showing uh, you know that you're leaning one way, but it's hard. And I think I've always appreciated the the Daryl Waltrip audio that you played in the 500. I mean, how would you not react that way if you saw your your brother after years never win finally winning? Um, so hearing everyone and like I said, them yelling the Michael Waltrip in unison. I mean, it's 
it's it's it was phenomenal. And then on top of that, something also non-racing fans don't realize: when you go to a Laker game and it's the Lakers versus the Celtics, you're going to come across the majority of the people Laker fans or Celtic fans. You don't usually see fans of the Cleveland Cavaliers show up all of a sudden to a Lakers game, and if they do, they don't make a sound. You don't hear them, right? right? And at a NASCAR race, you have 43 drivers. So it's not like there are sporting events happening all over the world each uh, each week or every night like there is in the NBA or NFL or Major League Baseball. In NASCAR, it's one event, 43 teams, and they all compete at the same time. So the fan base is made up of all these different people. So there's not a uniform cheering at any single moment. Right. But the second Dale Jr. came around when he made the final pass um, for the lead in those last couple laps, listen, listen to the audio. It's uniform. It's not Jeff Gordon fans and Dave Blaney fans. It's fathers and sons. It's them realizing this is this is not just racing. This is more important than all that. And that's why they all reacted. That's why the commentators, everyone dropped their uh, their professional guard. And, and, and for a moment, I just feel it was it was something special. That was amazing. Really nicely done there. Uh, the next credential is our press conference. Any famous quotes to come from this moment? Let's listen to a couple. Here we go. Here's the first one. He was with me tonight. I, I don't know how I did it, but he was there. And Mike will help me. I guess we're even now. That That's obviously Dale Jr. after the win. Him immediately referencing, like, you know, I watched this or I rewatched this again. I did not see this live, but rewatching this and again, knowing this story, part of me wonders how much did the, did everyone know the circumstances of this in the moment? And of course, that's one of the first thing Dale Jr. says after the after the race. Of course they know. Of course that is heavy on their minds. They know it. And then obviously that gets mentioned uh, uh, right after the win. The connection must have been intense. Those guys will never forget each other because of, of this pocket of time. It's really fascinating to think about. Yeah, no, I, I think that um... – I was always moved by a, a, a story, if you don't mind me uh, saying that after – I'm sorry. When Junior first came into the sport, he was he started as a rookie where you only race like five races of the year, and that was 1999. And then his, uh, to the year 2000, he came on to race the full race. And if you don't know NASCAR, Junior has won a lot of races, but he's never won a championship. And he certainly was not as, as uh, revered as his father was. And when he came in as a rookie in the year 2000 um, – he said that every race they'd always have a driver's meeting before the race and that Dale, he walked into his first one and Dale senior sitting in the front row, which everyone just knew that Dale senior was going to sit in the front row. And Dale senior had put a, I mean, basically had held a spot for his son to come up. So all the drivers always knew you don't sit in Dale's seat, you know, and all of a sudden his father made way for junior to sit up there as well. So junior, the entire 2000 season sits up front, almost as royalty, just based off of his name. Right. And there had to be, <clears throat> I'm sure some resentment, obviously for other people who maybe, uh, maybe were better drivers or, or wanted a fair shot. And here's junior in the same situation. And of course he, he he's a, he's a kid who, who might not know, had known how special that was. Um, but the, the first race, after Dale had died at that Rockingham race, and I believe it was the first race, um, Dale went into the, the driver's meeting. And remember, he's already probably feeling still horrible about his father passing and not wanting to be there. But he goes into that famous meeting, and I believe I believe it was Dale Jarrett was sitting in the seat. Mm. Like it was like how quick did the the social hierarchy change? 
And it was like unwritten. No one spoke about it. And Dale Jr., I believe, I remember reading that in his book, he said about how horrible he felt that all of a sudden the path that his father had carved out for him this entire time for his entire life was gone. And all of a sudden he was just Dale Jr. He was just Dale. He was just a guy who had to prove himself like everybody else. And it was, it was heartbreaking for him. And every time I thought about that, I was thinking that's, that had to be weighing so heavily on him. And then for all of a sudden for him to win this at the, the Pepsi 400 and he, all the references that everyone's saying, yeah, that he had help um, that night and whatever. It's, I, mean, I think it, it, it set him, set him free in terms of uh, a bit of weight off his, his shoulders and uh, um, the monkey off his back, whatever cliches I can throw in there. But um I don't know. I just think it added to it being special. That's you got to lay out Dale Jarrett in that moment. You got to walk right up to him <laughs> and you got to put one right across his jaw and lay him out. And I feel bad because if you put this in, I'm not. I'm. I'm like 93 percent certain it's Dale Jarrett because he was big. No, he was fuck really Dale Jarrett. B- <laughs> he was really big at the time. I almost want to look to double check, but I apologize to Dale Jarrett and the family if I was wrong. <laughs> Fucking Dale Jarrett, you piece of shit. No, that's that's an amazing story. Um, here's another. Here's uh, Michael Waltrip after the race. And back in February, it was Michael Walter pushed to victory lane by Dale Earnhardt Jr. Did you pay back that favor tonight? Was that the game plan, Michael? I just wanted Dale Jr. to win so bad, and I wanted to be a part of it. I didn't want to finish 10th or 12th, and uh, I was committed to Dale Jr., just like he was to me in February. And I'll tell you when I really learned a lesson, when I was running third, protecting Dale Jr. and Rusty, and that's what Dale was doing in February. That's, that's a handful. They were all over me, but I just... I stayed committed. I wasn't about to bail out on him. And uh, Dale Jr. called me on Monday morning after Daytona 500, and he said, I'm there for you, brother. And he was. And uh, I just wanted to be part of it with him. Amazing. It just a lovely sentiment. Just a lovely postscript to this race. Here's, here's another quote. This now, more recently, Dale Jr. looking back at the race. Let's hear what he had to say. You ever imagined your life being played out on the screen? Maybe you want to entertain the idea of who would play you or what would be the beginning or the end. When for me, the end is the July 2001 win. I think that's a great point. It's something that I think most people have done, imagining the movie of your life and where does it start, where does it finish. It's it's amazing that he's, for all intents and purposes, saying this is the greatest moment of my career. This is where my movie would end. What an amazing way to en- encapsulate this moment is to say this would be the end of my movie. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, I, there's a there's an unfortunate stigma to, to NASCAR and racing altogether, even to the point of me uh, um, wanting to over, overly say that I'm not a huge fan, which is, it's really unfortunate. Um, because NASCAR, as I've said, is as academic. Uh, I don't think it gives it the respect that it, it deserves. Um, but that being said, as much as I love football, I'm a diehard, you know, Browns fan, and I love the Detroit Tigers and all these other sports that I've been raised around and had special moments growing up that, Neil, you and I both shared enjoying watching sports. If you asked me what was the greatest sporting moment I ever saw, this is it. Yeah. It seems absurd to some people to choose such a moment, but there's so many layers yeah. of of family layers of mysticism that goes along with it that it's it's hard to walk away with it without um, getting teary eyed. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's just me. But. Well, that's that's a perfect segue into the next credential. It's the test of time. Let's when we compare this moment against other moments like it in history. Are there any other races here that this 
competes with? Can you think of any other races? What about, let's let's talk about the races that you brought up. Steve Park winning and Kevin Harvick winning. Uh, you know, Steve Park winning the first race after Dale passes, and Kevin Harvick, Dale's replacement, winning the the third race that he races in, or whichever race it was. I'm not certain. Or, or this Dale Jr. winning the Pepsi 400. Does does can you think of another race that compares and stacks up against the Pepsi 400 in 2001? <laughs> especially not in the order that those things happened. I mean, it's almost like you're writing it as part of a movie script Yeah. Uh, for, for Waltrip to win the first race, Park to win the second, Harvick to win technically the fourth, but his third overall. And then for junior to win when they go back to Daytona, that's crazy. Um, Yeah. No, I, I, I'm like I said, I'd be lying if I told you I've watched racing because I haven't really watched racing in the last 10, 10 or 15 years. Um, but yeah, not from my not from my limited exposure. Michael, before we move on, I was a tremendous athlete as a kid. Isn't that so? <laughs> sure. Yeah. What, now, what do you remember? <laughs> I don't know what the fuck. What do you? You all right? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just laughing. What do you? No, I heard. What do you remember about my <laughs> athletic days? What is the greatest sports memory you have of us as kids? Oh, you don't want to know that. No, I mean, it, it, yes, you I want me do. to bring up the. The go greatest ahead. moment that go I ahead. have tell memory it. of? Go ahead. Tell go ahead. Can I name names or am I not supposed to say don't names? Don't say last on... names. Oh, okay. Okay. Just to protect um, these people. I mean, they don't want to be dragged into this podcast. <laughs> now there's there's been a, a number of sporting events that obviously you deem special from your perspective. Obviously, with your travel, <laughs> you being in travel leagues and That's starting, right. starting travel bar- basketball, AAU baby. And starting varsity three years in, in That's in goddamn high right. <laughs> But the greatest <laughs> moment of all time and of our childhood was um, uh, you. Because I want your listeners to realize that not only were you good in sports, but you had an arrogance to you as yes. well. So, as you can tell by this demeanor on the on this podcast, but um, the neighborhood kids knew it, and my brother was of the way. And everyone who's plays sports out there knows what I'm talking about. When you're choosing teams and you come across two jackass kids who sit back and say, we're a partner, we're a team. You can't separate us. And they're the two best kids. And, you can, and you're like, it doesn't make sense to have them both on the same team. Well, my brother was one of those two people, <laughs> along with a kid named Eric. I can't say his last name. But anyways, um, so we're playing wiffle ball, which is arguably the greatest wiffle ball game of all time. And there's a kid, very diminutive kid down the street named he Omar. Was, he was so small. He was very small, and he was the opposite of athletic. No, he wasn't and, athletic at all. Right, right, right. And and but he was a really nice kid. He was a good nice friend. <laughs> and uh, he was in our backyard, and we were playing. I think we were in a hurry, but uh, to make a long story short, you had been harassing him the entire game because he was on your team. Right. That he was not pitching well, right. and he was actually pitching outstanding. Well, he was striking some of the best hitters no, out no, no. on our <laughs> on our team. He was he was pitching. To, uh, honestly, he was an all-star performance in my memory. And I remember thinking, <laughs> this kid does not have the physical ability to do what he was doing. But he wasn't living up to your standards. <laughs> it was the reality. So in the height of the game, in the final inning. Ninth inning. Um, ninth inning, uh, we have the bases loaded. And I believe I was the last person to get on base. And I was on first. Uh, Rob was on second. I can't remember all these names, but they were all on base. And um, Omar, who had now loaded the base bases, you were infuriated with. And of course, from your perspective, <laughs> it makes sense that you're infuriated because he just loaded the bases. But he had been o- doing Omar's, a good job. Omar's gone eight and two thirds innings at yes, this point. Eight and two thirds inning uh, had had done well. 
And then I believe it was I believe it was Jeremy who got up to the plate. Yes. And uh, you walked up to to Omar, who I believe we were calling him Oil Can Boyd. We were making reference to him as Oil Can Boyd in that game because we were blown away. Um, I mean, we were complimenting the dude. He wasn't on our team. Yeah. You know how how adolescent sports are. We didn't want to compliment anybody, but that's how much we were impressed with him. Well, he unfortunately loaded the bases. You walked up to the mound, removed him took as the, the player coach, took that's the right. ball out of his hand, and went to pitch to Jeremy, who... Did a walk off Grand Slam home run. First pitch. First, First pitch. pitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for them to hear these. <laughs> Were, weren't we up three runs too? Yeah, it was. It We're was... literally up three runs. By the way, I asked this question knowing you would tell this story. This was no, not rehearsed. No, you didn't. I swear to God I did. I wrote that exactly so that you would tell this exact story. I assumed Eight... you were going to echo out something else. No, no, no. Eight and two-thirds innings. I get the ball out of the guy's hand. He's got the sacks juiced, and I'm like, I need to pitch. I have to take over here. I am Neil, one of the finest athletes of our times in, in this neighborhood. I'm taking the ball, and I'm throwing First pitch to Jeremy, crack, gone. <laughs> and and they win, walk off, win four runs, beat us by a run. That is the last wiffle ball game I ever played. Yeah. Honestly, I'm embarrassed to say it's the greatest sports moment of my life. <laughs> being a backyard sports game. But no, it's it's that memorable to me. Oh, my God. Sickening. Sickening to think about. Omar, I'm so sorry. The next credential... <laughs> Is you mad? Was anybody mad about this? Rob, play my camera on clip here. Wait, wait. Mad, you mad, you mad. Uh, thank you so much. Was anybody mad? Did this moment piss anybody off? Absolutely. Jimmy Spencer, another NASCAR driver, declared that he knew the number eight of Dale Earnhardt Jr. was going to win. Quote from Jimmy Spencer. Quote, I knew going in that the eight car was going to win this race. Something was fictitious. And he was and he was really fast the other night. They were fast down here in February. It's not ironic that the eight car would win with what happened here in February. Your thoughts on Jimmy Spencer's quote, Michael, and, and it leads into the next category, which is burning questions. Any chance that NASCAR set this up? Uh, I mean, it's so perfect. Uh, it's it's obvious. It's easy to think that. Um in fact, a lot of people said that at the time. And what was interesting is that when they went back to those exact people, Johnny Benson and, and Jimmy Spencer, um, after the race, or I mean, in that next week, they kind of you know took back their statements and restructured them and said, "Hey, listen, the news media does a wonderful job of of taking things out of uh, out of um, context and wanting to put their own spin on this." Uh, and Johnny Benson specifically said, "No, no, no, no. I've always thought Pontiacs had a disadvantage over Chevy." He said something in that scope. Um, uh, so is it possible that it was reworded or misunderstood? I mean, in a time that, that, uh, you know, stock cars would have to go through a very rigorous post race inspection. I mean, I mean, <clears throat> to, to millis, millim, you know, millimeters of, 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 uh, clearance to be able to make certain that they're right. Each car is identical. Um, it would be a quite the conspiracy. And yeah. I, and I understand that, uh, it's, Man, the world, sports world, the political world, everyone loves conspiracies that there's always it's you know much more hip to think that there's something that uh, explains what we don't want to accept. Um, but the reality is well, you're talking about a multi multi million dollar industry that um, each team is fighting to win. 
And if there was cheating going on, because these crew chiefs would talk to each other, something would be. I mean, these the 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 garages are open. People yeah. can walk in. Other team. If something was going on, um, that would be a lot of. Uh, uh, people working together. You can't get a, you can't pay to keep a secret between two people in a room, let alone hundreds of people who don't care about each other. Right. Don't work for each other. Could give a rat's ass if whether or not they get, uh, you know, uh, criticized by NASCAR, someone would talk and considering, you know, uh, most of the drivers sat back and said, listen, now we're not criticizing junior. He won the race. I mean, the reality is what I said earlier, he had four tires. That, I mean, that's just physics. If you watch NASCAR, four tires really, you know, can pull you away in a lot of circumstances. And it's not just in that one. Not only would it be a lot of people that would have to keep that lie, there would also probably be a fair amount of money on the table if you knew that and could leak that story, tell, write that book. You'd probably make a ton of money. So right. I, I tend to agree with you. The next category is X Factor. Everybody knows what an X factor is. Any X factors that sort of make this moment more special. What sticks out? I have one I want to pitch you first. Dale Jr.'s helmet from this race is in his Hall of Fame display, in his NASCAR Hall of Fame display. The car that he won this race in is now displayed at the International Motorsports Hall of Fame in Talladega. Uh, Here's the one that I think is amazing. I listened to a Dale Earnhardt Jr. um, interview about this race. Here's what he had to say. A lot of people, I think, were given a gift, you know, of closure and some relief. Closure. This this win providing people closure. That that's wild to think about. You know, as a Laker fan who watched Kobe pass, you, you're you're left with that, like, God, I wish. You know, I wish there was something that sort of wrapped this up. And that's why the Lakers winning that championship in the bubble was so special to me. I needed that as a fan. I wanted that as a fan. I I was trapped in my house during a global pandemic. Kobe had died and then the Lakers won the championship. It was closure. The same thing here. You, You can't dismiss that closure. Hearing person talk about closure. That's like an important psychological thing. It's like important for your brain, for your mind, for your life. And for this moment to provide that to people just puts it on another planet. Truly amazing. Mike, I see the clock is running down on us. It's almost time for America's favorite podcast segment, More Important. Mike, have you heard More Important on the show before? Uh, I believe so. Well, hot damn, we got our first person. (laughs) So you know how this works, but I don't give a shit. I'm going to cut you off like a dog. Anyways, you can eat shit, pal. Michael, are you ready for more important? Uh, Okay, I'm going to admit, I don't know how this works, so you might want to explain it to you. Have you you heard more important, or you've not heard more important? I don't believe I have. Maybe I have. Maybe I have. You know, I'm your brother, and this is my show. (laughs) I'd listen to it all the time. I just do you. Sometimes I don't remember it. You, you piece I don't of remember shit. the titles of. I don't remember the titles of each section. Holy Christ! Right. This has got to be an important one, though. I'm assuming. You piece of shit! Oh my God, Neil! I'm so busy. I want to. You realize I don't even watch movies anymore. Oh, don't give me that horse shit! I am your younger brother. 
Listen, I, I will honestly want to listen. I've listened to all your shows, or not all of them, but the majority of them, where I was starting listening through it, and then something happens, or I'm in my car, and I have to you, stop, oh, and then me. my ability to go back to it was, was <laughs> you, limited. You, you, you colossal piece of shit. I cannot believe you're my brother. It, fuck face, you haven't even opened up my... <laughs> clip i wrote for you to be able to see i just wanted your input i keep waiting to get a response from you on it all you have to do is click on it and say i read it (laughs) michael are you ready for more important i am michael you are in charge of a massive grant and effort helping to educate and train the incarcerated population of northwest ohio in the hopes of reducing recidivism Tell us more about your plans and your goals on your new job. Uh, on my on my job, um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, uh... oh, I'm so sorry, we don't have time for that <laughs> because it's time for more important. The music's playing. Here we go. I'm so glad that you're doing that. I truly, I am so glad that you're doing that for people. I truly hope it works. I believe that it will. But we have to keep the podcast moving. Michael, the questions I'm about to ask you are all more important than anything you've said in this podcast. Your answers will define you as a human being on this planet. Are you ready? I believe so. What is the best Thanksgiving food? Uh, It's my wife's tomato bread pudding. Oh, my God. Sorry. What a... (laughs) Jesus Christ, what a fucking ass kisser. You're a big movie buff. What is the best sports movie? Oh, I'm so torn. Sports movie. I have have to to say say one. Feel the Dreams. I know it's not a typical sports movie, but that's the greatest movie of all time. Yeah. Very good. Uh, Next question. Why did you yell at me and try to make me feel bad after you hydroplaned and hit the back of that car? I didn't. None of that is true. That is true. You yelled at me. (laughs) That's not true. You did. You, like, told mom. You were like, and then Neil offered up, like, is everything okay? We're sorry we did that. (laughs) That never happened. We I got tapped. out and was like, I'm we so tapped. sorry. Yes. We tapped a bumper. Like, tapped a bumper. <laughs> you paint this picture like we rear-ended and, and, and demolished the car. We tapped the bumper. The guy got to, the woman or guy, I remember, got out and said, oh, it looks fine. I said, okay, uh, sorry about that. Let's get, we we're about to get out. You were like, hey, excuse me, ma'am. Can we give us, can we give you our name and our bank account information? <laughs> You're giving us all this additional stuff that didn't happen. <laughs> I'm like, don't give anything you don't have to give. They clearly said it's okay. It was just a tap. <laughs> now you're bastardizing this. That's not fair. We got to keep moving. The, the music's playing. There's like a timer and thing. Uh, what movies did you and I attend together, but we left before the movie was over because the movies were so bad? I walked out of Natural Born Killers. I thought that was horrible. I don't remember anything else no, that I we would have walked out of together. I thought um, we went. Didn't we go see Lord of the Rings together? Oh, we did. Oh, See? no, hold on a second. There was a couple movies. Lord of the Rings yes. was so bad. And yes. we're, you're alienating your fan base with that. <laughs> as much as I respect the, the Lord of the Rings uh, community, uh, we just, we're just we just not Lord of the Rings people. You're right. We walked <laughs> Listen, out of don't that. Don't be a coward. Don't be afraid of them. Tell them you thought the movie was bad. Yeah, it was. Well, we just wasn't our. It wasn't our film. I do believe people have different tastes. <laughs> so but Lord I know the, the other one. one. What's the other one? Um, it is, uh, I'm trying to remember what the name of the, oh, I know the, the actress's name. It's uh, Hereditary yes, with Tony Collette. That's right, that's right. We were so indignant in that theater. <laughs> I remember, I think we were out loud saying, I can't believe we paid to see this. And when we walked out, I was a complete asshole, and I was yelling to the, to the theater personnel, I can't believe 
I paid for this. And do you remember what the guy did? He gave us a pizza. He gave us free pizzas. <laughs> Each of us got a free pizza because because we were criticizing this poor folks. Which is funny because a lot of people think that's a great. It's got like a ninety percent in rotten people tomatoes. People love it. People they love, love it. it. They it love it. Granted, we didn't watch the whole movie. We saw a third of it. That's true. <laughs> we saw a third of it, judged it, and I think we were just yeah. We were laughing in the theater. We were laughing about oh it. Yeah. God, Maybe I should really rewatch it. Yeah. We got to go to the next question. Why did you steal my Scotty Pippen, Charles Barkley, and Carl Malone rookie cards? And I know that you have them. I was just at your house and I saw them with my own two fucking eyes. You fucking vulture. Why did you steal them? I did not steal them. You gave every card you had to my son. You piece of shit. Has. How dare you bring up your son in this? You stole my Scotty Pippen, Charles Barkley, and Bring Carmel him Lippen. on this show, and piece he will tell shit. you himself. Unbelievable. You have a limited memory as to what this you This is do. terrible. I'm so sorry you that everyone has to listen to this. <laughs> you don't remember what you say, and then you blame Disgusting me. Disgusting liar. <laughs> We have Take to them on. away from my child. They'll be fine with it. <laughs> what is the best Little Debbie snack cake? We grew up on those. Our parents loved us, but they let us eat absolute shit as a kid. What is the best Little Debbie snack cake? Uh, I mean, it's the oatmeal cream pie. It's the oh, original. What a coward. What a safe answer. It's I don't love that. That's safe. Last question. Why did you make me feel bad as a kid after I snuck cookies up into our shared bedroom so that we could eat cookies together before bedtime? Listen, you <laughs> we weren't allowed to eat cookies. And I get the fact that you're trying to sneak them. I brought you cookies, dude. <laughs> I yeah, know that... I know the rest of the story and I'm sure you're going to tell it. But the truth is is I thought of you. I got into the pantry, I got cookies and I thought I'll bring some to my brother. Okay, so to your listeners, I know there's the punchline here. You brought them up in your underwear. It was your tighty whities Like, you had tight... Listen. You had tight, you had tight underwear on. Listen, and you put these dude. cookies directly in the front of your pants. And you ran up, and you said, hey, I got you cookies. And I remember... I don't think you were at that age that you understood germ theory, but I was old enough, just 17 months old enough, to, to realize that that's not... Dude, it wasn't cool, yeah. You're, I think I told that at your wedding. You're <laughs> looking past the fact that I brought you cookies. Like, from your vantage point, I put cookies in my underwear. But from the thing that never gets seen is that the younger brother brings his older brother cookies in bed. And you just dismiss them out of hand. And you've told that story at the cost of me to make me look bad. Since then, I don't think it's cool. And I just want to bring up, I just want to know why you do that. Looking back, I'm sure I feel bad uh, overlooking your your sentiment, your uh, your generous uh, generous nature. You are a fucking coward. Uh, <laughs> that's the end of more important. You did great. Uh, the next credential is the cosign. The, the floor is yours, Michael. My brother does the Pepsi 400 in 2001. Dale Jr. wins it. Michael Waltrip in second. Does that belong in the first ballot Hall of Fame, and why? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think you'd have invited me on if I didn't already feel that way. Um, <clears throat> like I said earlier, it's 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 beyond sports. I think people clamor to movies, to sports moments, to historical, to documentaries, to anything that makes makes it seem like there's more of a, a, a an order to this world um, than the chaos that we live in. <laughs> so, anytime there's a story that seems to unfold that looks uh, poetic, that looks like it's um, 
meant to be, like a, a Hollywood screenwriter would have scripted it, uh, but happens to be real. I think we all clamor to those types of stories. And all of us, particularly, I'm imagining that the bulk of your uh, sports uh, 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 listeners uh, are probably fathers and sons themselves, not all of them, but a, a good number of them, that, man, I would think that everybody who, rather, regardless if they're a, a race fan or not, the story just is, um, as a father-son story is unparalleled in sports. Thank you for that. Thank you for everything on this episode. But it's time for the induction speech, the last credential. That's when I, Neil, the owner and creator of the First Ballot Hall of Fame podcast and organization, get to decide whether this moment makes the First Ballot Hall of Fame the story of this moment dominated this episode in a way that's never really happened before on this podcast. I submit this is the best NASCAR story. There might be other races that are exciting and amazing things happen, but this has got to be the best NASCAR story that's ever happened, period. And as you said earlier, Michael, I think you've got a real chance at this being one of the best sports moments and stories I've ever seen, period. And get ready, Dale Jr., you talked about this being the end of your movie. And I believe it will be. I believe this will be an actual movie, and I'd be shocked if this wasn't the end of it in a few years. It's an impossibly good sports moment and an even better life moment. It was a privilege to share this episode with my brother, who I love dearly, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Dale Earnhardt Sr., Michael Waltrip, and my brother, Michael, congratulations. The 2001 Pepsi 400 is hereby inducted into the first ballot Hall of Fame. May your plaque hang on the wall forever. Oh, man, I did so good. I kind of carried you along in this, in this episode, but I was so good You did good so here. well. <laughs> oh, you piece of shit. <laughs> Mike, what are you, what are you, what can you plug? Are you working on anything? Can you plug anything? How can people follow you if they're interested? I don't Neil, I don't know how to plug. I don't know how to plug. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an adult. I'm an adult. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not working anything other than things I'm working with you that I'm not talking about yet. <laughs> That's it. I'm writing a book. That's that's about it. Yeah. Wow, I can't wait to I can't wait to tweet yeah. about it. We'll have you back on when the when the book comes out. Sure. Michael, thank you so much for doing the show. I really appreciate it. I love you, sir. I, I love you. Thanks, Neil. That's it. That's the show. My special thanks to my brother, Michael, for being a great guest and an even more amazing brother. He's an adult, so he has no social media. You cannot support him. Salt of the earth, that guy. Love you, Mike. Credits. First Ballot is produced by the mighty Jessica Seng. It's edited by Robbie Arucci. I literally could not make the show without the two of them. My thanks to you on this Thanksgiving. Rhythm J makes all the beats and the theme for First Ballot. Check him out on social at Rhythm J. Jorge Naranjo plays the guitar for our more important theme song. Thank you, sir. Today's shout-out goes to Batting Leadoff at QPeep77 on Twitter for telling his followers about the show. He's a huge Ricky Henderson fan which makes him one bad dude if you ask me. He's got Ricky Henderson batting gloves in, in like lucite containers. That's incredible. Thank you, QPeep77, for finding this show. I really appreciate you listening to us. Have a good holiday, everyone. Stay healthy and come back next week for more First Ballot.